Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Hi, welcome back to Your Family Dog. I'm Julie Fudge-Smith, and I'm here with Ms. Tina Spring, dog trainer par excellence. (laughs) And today, we are going to talk about training and what it is, perhaps what it isn't, and how management is an important part of training, and perhaps a solution that we've talked about in the past, that management oftentimes will lead you to the solution that you want, but why management might actually be, in many ways, the way in which you want to train your dog. So I had an example of it. I have a client who has a lovely greater Swiss mountain dog who is fairly young, and he wants the dog to learn to go up and down the stairs sort of on command. And at first he said to me, I want the dog to go down. I want him to sit either at the top or the bottom and to go either up or down the stairs after the people. And I thought about that and I said, okay, we can do that. And I said to myself, you know, my dogs all know how to go up and down the stairs. They know what side of the stairs I want them to be on. They know to go up when I tell them to go up and they know to go down when I tell them to go down. And how in the world did I teach them that? Because I did not write this protocol down. I did not go, I am going to teach my dogs to go sanely up and down the stairs. So I thought about it seriously for a whole week because apparently that's how slow my brain works. Thinking to myself, what did I do to teach these dogs to go up and down the stairs? And what I realized was the protocol was actually very simple. I just decided how I wanted them to go down the stairs. And then we did that every time. So, for example, my back stairs have a curve that's kind of tight, and I have big dogs. And if you're on the inside of the curve, you will lose your footing and fall down the stairs. So I train them all to go on the outside of the steps against the outside wall. So how did I do that? I did that basically by body blocking the inside curve so that in order for them to either go up or down the stairs, they had to be on the outside of the curve. And we just did that every single time you went up and down the stairs. And when they were little, I generally didn't want them going up and down the stairs without me anyway. So I had a gate at the top or the bottom so I could be there to help them go down the stairs on the right side. And every time he would go down the stairs from the top, I'd point and say, go down. And they would start, and I would make sure they were on the outside. And in reverse, when we were coming up the stairs, I would body block the side I didn't want them to go on. And I'd say, go up. And I'd point, and they would start up the stairs. Until now, they go up and down the stairs on cue, and they will wait either at the top or the bottom for me. And I thought to myself, this is not something I sat down and thought, okay, today we are going to learn how to go up and down the stairs. Instead, what I did was sort of set a protocol by which we went up and down the stairs and just held to that protocol and helped and hoped. I'd like to say that everybody in the household was more than cooperative on this protocol and joined in and did it exactly the way I wanted to do every single time. It was perfect every time. It was perfect every time in someone else's house. Certainly not in mine. But it was basically in place. And as a result, my dogs learned fairly quickly, I think. I don't really know the time frame. I just know that they learned. So I got to think about that. One day you just found you didn't have to say it. Or one day you found you didn't have to crowd them 
to get them in the correct position. They just learned that that's how we do it. Right. Or I was at the top of the stairs. I had an armful of laundry or something. And I looked at Zuzu and said, go down. And she went down the right side of the stairs and ended up at the bottom. And I'm like, wow, okay, that worked. Right. So So I think families sometimes think training is this thing that you set aside time in your life to do. When Mm -hmm. my experience is the vast majority of the time, like we're training all the time, like parenting, right? Our children, our dogs, our spouses, our partners, our coworkers give us thousands of opportunities to get it right. Um, And I think for the average family that I'm working with, we start with the things that their dog is making their blood pressure go for a personal best first. And then we start to get into some of the more elegant stuff. So um, the stairs one, I think, is a really great example. I get a lot of people who tell me they want the dog to wait for them to go up and down the stairs. And I don't train it that way. No, um, I don't because, because if it all goes wrong, right, if somebody rings the doorbell when you're pregnant and halfway down, the, like you're halfway down the stairs, the dog's going to take you out at the knees, like, because they're going to screw it up because they're young, silly, enthusiastic dogs, you know, or if it's your great grandmother, right They're somebody's going to get hurt. So for me, for me, I'm often where I would say I'm maybe super helpful with a family is to say, okay, well, while that while that seems good in theory, this little adjustment might make it a little bit more foolproof. Right. right? Because or, what or, you want is the I want my eyes on the dog. I want to know where the dog yeah. is at all points because if I'm got a basket full of laundry and you're behind me and I can't see you, I'm right. pretty much I don't know, there's somewhere around a hundred percent guarantee that this is not going to end well. <laughs> right. And it's never the dog that gets hurt. No. It's the always dog that, me. Yeah, yeah. So so here I I've got, you know, ass over tea kettle, right? And the laundry's everywhere and the dog's sitting in the middle of the dirty underwear going, Can we go out now? You know, just right. like, why are you crying? <laughs> so I I mean, I actually I broke my Cossacks. Um, going up and down stairs in socks. Um, I was going uh-huh. down the stairs and my heel slipped out from under me. Thank goodness the dogs all knew to go down the stairs in front of me so I didn't land on anybody. Um, and I mean, I laid there on the stairs for a good 30 minutes trying to decide if I was going to die or barf or pass out. So um, it it probably, like without hyperbole, it probably took me the better part of an hour to get off the stairs, right? If the dogs had been behind me, like I would not have been able to manage that, right? right. Having, cause I'm like sprawled on the stairs, pretty sure that I've killed myself, right? Like just doing the inventory of what body parts are never going to function again. Like, did I actually break my neck? And I was moving in and out of consciousness pretty regularly during that time. So Having the dogs downstairs in front of me helped. Um, my sweet Doberman, who was like Cary Grant, came up, checked on his dying mother, thought, crud, nobody's going to make us dinner, and just <laughs> laid on the stairs and hung out with me. Um, but like nobody, I mean, I had nine dogs at the time. Nobody trampled me. Nobody, you know, destroyed the house. But nobody was behind me. And if a dog had been, and I think I was carrying laundry, but if someone had been behind me, I think a dog would have been landed on 
and not right. elegantly. Right. Because right. I don't I don't ever fall like a prima ballerina. That's not really in my repertoire. <laughs> yes. I'm more right. like the hippos in Fantasia. So <laughs> yes. um Yeah, and my my and in having the dogs in front of me, then they can turn around and say, Oh, mom's on the floor, let's go give her a kiss. Um, which is what usually if, if if I'm on the floor, then it's usually, oh, we must we you must need us to kiss you. You, um, you need kisses and cuddle. <laughs> That's right. So um, but I'd much which rather usually have I do if I'm on the floor, like if, if, <laughs> I've, if I've landed on the floor, something's gone terribly wrong. I was attempting to fly and was unsuccessful. <laughs> That's right. So so I have a really good example for this. Um so, so one, I have a, an instructor with our company who early on working with us, we had somebody contact us who lived on a farm and had a new dog and needed to, a horse farm, needed to teach the dog not to go into pastures, right? And so the, the woman who works with me, Jennifer, um, is a retired horse trainer. Her, she has horse on property. All of her dogs know don't go into the pastures without permission. Um, like they all know that. And so she was like, sure, yeah, we can totally train this. And I'm like, great. How did you do it? And there was this deadening silence <laughs> as she went, oh, oh, I don't actually know how I done that. <laughs> so there is, I think dog trainers, horse trainers, life trainers, there is a little bit of, oh, oh, I, I don't actually know how I taught yes. it. I, I've just taught it. And we then assume, and I, and I think I'm saying, I'm telling this story to say it trips families up too. They're like, well, the last 10 dogs learned it. I'm like, right. But this one doesn't look up, right? Like just because, you know, like my last two children learned this. I don't know why it's difficult for the third one. So, so sometimes families haven't actually thought about how they taught something. They just did it as a part of living. Right. So, so the family that I was working with last night is a really beautiful example of this. Um, they have like a sweet, probably like pity lab, Dane cross puppy. Who's right around a year old. He is enthusiastic. If nothing else, all things with enthusiasm. And then they have like an elderly Shih Tzu, and a middle-aged, probably houndy something, kind of asocial female dog, right? So, so, so sweet Stella, if you come to the door, go like looks around the corner from the other room and goes, hey, and then goes and does her own thing. Like she doesn't want cuddles. She doesn't want petting. She doesn't really want to greet you. So an easy dog to have people come to the house. She doesn't really want to say hello more than like the people greet her at Walmart. Like, Hey, how are you doing? Nick, the little Shih Tzu is just, you know, the 10,000 year old Shih Tzu who half the time sleeps through people arriving and he's, you know, what? 12 pounds. So he's not like, he's not knocking anybody over. He's not going to kill a grandma. Like, I mean, I guess he could trip one, but that's about it. So Nick is super friendly when people come to the house. Well, now we have <laughs> Captain Enthusiasm who doesn't even know that his back legs get him spun around because he wasn't paying attention to how fast he was go going and gives himself a concussion walking down the hallway. So the, her, the lesson was I want to work on greetings at the door. I'm like, great. 
step one, why we're not, why we're not going to do it, <laughs> right? He's going to step on the 10,000 year old dog, which, so then we're mad at him. He's going to jump on somebody at the door. We're going to be mad at him. He's going to scoot out the front door, chase a deer and get hit by a car, right? Like there's, there's a whole bunch of, maybe he doesn't need to greet people at the door. Um, and then after we worked through all the, like, I might just crate him before I let people in and then bring him out on a leash once kind of the people settle down and Stella and Nick have done their greetings, then maybe we have him greet people, you know, half an hour into the visit. Right. Not everybody has to be greeted right away. And that's a hard time. That's a hard thing to teach owners is they don't understand that not every my dog does not have to meet everybody who comes to my house. Nor do they have to meet everybody who comes to my house right when they come to my house. No. And really, like as a dog trainer, that's I see so many problems at the front door. Yes. Right. Like I've almost had a dog fight break out at my feet just over the excitement of somebody came to the door. Not not my dogs, other people's dogs. So now I tell people before I arrive, crate the dogs, like crate them before I arrive and then we'll get them out once they settle down and we'll do what we need to do. So I'm, I'm saying all that to say, so then once we talked about, and, and she just, the owner was, I love this owner. She's super fantastic. And one of the things she said is, you know, I never thought about it, that we've always had like easygoing, not a conflict, not really super crazy. And like, there's one enthusiastic dog. There's one not enthusiastic dog nobody's been 10,000 years old, right? Like I haven't had a puppy in this kind of situation before um, and never anything this big. So she's like, I love the answer that he doesn't have to greet anybody. And I was like, okay, good. I'm glad. I thought I was gonna make you mad. But then the next piece was we were gonna work on the jumping up and door manners and all that stuff so that she had tools of how to do it for when they're ready to try, you know, when he's nine. So that's right. <laughs> when he settles down, <laughs> right? So, so we started with, um, he's already conditioned to lay on his dog bed. He knows that he was offering that behavior. I was like, brilliant. That will make chicken happen. And then I would start to approach if he sat up, I went, Oh, you're too excited. And I backed up and then he would lay down on his bed again until I could close the whole distance and I'm tossing chicken when he's getting it right and giving him good support. And he was brilliant. Like there was no jumping on the dog trainer, which is a departure from the first lesson where the dog trainer had hoof prints on her forehead. Owners right. like over the moon, happy, awesome. This is way better. I'm like, great. And he did have a leash on so we could manage him. Then He's laying on his dog bed. We kind of set the dog bed so he could see the front door. And I started just classically conditioning. Jiggle the door lock, throw chicken. Jiggle the door and lock, throw chicken. And the owner got to see that each step of opening the door made him more excited and edgy. And that what I really did was conditioned like, oh, that doesn't actually mean anything. Like I unlocked and unlocked that door 50 times until he stayed just as relaxed as he was hanging out on the bed, eating chicken as he was about the door lock happening. Then I did the same thing for rattling the doorknob. Then we mm -hmm. did unlock the door and the doorknob. 
Eventually, we were cracking the door open and closing it again. And she got to see how difficult all of those individual steps were for him to manage. Right. right? And that's and that's separate from a human coming in the door. So he was already amped and excited. Right. That's all going to break down again because right. all that training is kind of like, well, that's all training, but there's nobody there. But right. I add in the excitement of a, of a person. Well, right. And for goodness sakes, right? Like, so that's, so it's, we just talked about that for this sweet puppy boy for Captain Enthusiasm, this is a really big ask for an adolescent puppy boy who's still growing and isn't really entirely sure where his back legs are. Mm -hmm. So it was really beautiful for her. and, And she actually pointed this out before I left. She was like, I am so glad that we did this. Because I didn't think any of those other pieces actually impacted him. Right. Right. And I was like, right. I mean, like that's so it's not really so much that I I mean, his greeting of strangers might not actually be as enthusiastic as she thinks it is. It may be all the things that happen. The doorbell rings, the knocking happens, the screen door opens. She unlocks the door. She unlocks the other lock. She opens the door. All of that stuff has to be conditioned as much as greeting the person. Because for him, that is all part of the same process. And it's a little bit like, you know, we've climbed the mountain in the roller coaster and the door opening is the tipping over. And now we have all that behavioral gravity moving in the direction of lose your marbles and embed them in the neighbor's walls. So you know, I talked about what the next steps would be. Now it was frigid here um, by Georgia standards. So we did not practice me on the front porch, open the door, throw chicken in, close the door because I didn't want to let their heat out. But like showing her and talking through here are all the steps. If you already have a problem, like what have you accidentally been building? And And that I think for most families is a real gift that they sometimes go, oh, here I thought it was just the dog or it was just greeting the stranger. And it's not. It's all the stuff that happens right. before right. that. Which all of those have to be desensitized. You yeah. have to, to have to counter condition to all of those things because any one of them, because who knows how big of a trigger any one of those are. And if one, if one is, if you haven't taken care of that one trigger, it may set off the whole chain reaction. Right. And that's where the beauty of management, right? If this puppy's in the crate and all of the pieces happen and he loses his marbles, well, he still didn't jump on anybody. He was in his crate. So often that management piece, and I love that like you're totally on board with this, that the management piece is a teacher. It's another set of hands, right? Right. Like I, I don't need another human I can utilize the crate. I can utilize a really strong settlement cue. I can utilize a gate. I can utilize an indoor tether. I can utilize a leash and have some mm-hmm. really, or an X pen and have really excellent. There's an extra little bit of me when I need more me. Right. Right. Because the other thing I think that would, that gives me the opportunity. I've got a client whose dogs are, um, reactive to people coming through the door as well. Well, they're reactive to people, period. They're very space and touch sensitive. 
And one of the things I was talking about, and what you, you're doing here too, is the idea of trigger stacking. So what you have is that it's not just the person. It's all those little triggers lined up together. Each one amps me up a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. So you have to sort of counter condition all of those triggers because what happens is you, if, if, uh, if you want to give them a number of, say, say when my dog hits the number 10, right, I lose it, right? So if each one of these triggers and there's 12 triggers is a one, they stack up into a 12 and you know that your dog is going to go over the top. But if you can counter condition to all of these triggers so that you keep them below that reaction level, then you're going to be a lot more successful. So I think that that's a, another important thing to, to, to teach owners is that it's not, as you said, it's not just this one thing. It's all these things added together. And it's the adding together is what's going to put your dog over the top. And management helps so that you can prevent him. So one, of the, one of the things I tell people, I said, the, the key to management here is, um, please don't eat my purse. Uh, no, that's not the key to management. Um, She's not talking to me. <laughs> I'm talking to my new puppy. Um, so, um, and, and no, and, and don't eat the book either. All right. Um, You're very picky. I, I am. I am, but it's, um, it's my tea touch book and I need that for the next client. So we're going to pick that up. This is where perhaps a crate with something to do <laughs> would have been an excellent example of management. It would, but she had settled anyway. Um, <laughs> this, this part may all get edited out. Um, <gasps> hiding our, no, see, I would, oh. I, I would vote for leaving it in. Hey, you know what? She wasn't chewing my purse. She was finding the chewy. That was tough. Oh, what a good girl. See, false accusations. So, so, so one of the things. So, what was I trying to say? You you were Um, trying to say that management leads to fewer accidents, fewer mistakes. Right. What I tell people is that what the key to management is to set your dog up in and set his environment up such that your dog is less likely to make bad decisions, that he's more likely to make the appropriate decision. And the more we practice an appropriate decision, the more stronger it's going to be. And the more we can prevent an inappropriate response, the weaker it will be. So management is your aid in helping your dog to make better decisions. Reminds me of Jamie Curtis in Freaky Friday. Make good choices! (laughs) Which sends her daughter off to school. And that's kind of what I see management as. Management helps your dogs to make good choices. Right. Well, and it also allows you to get it wrong, right? If the dog is managed in such a way that they're not going to make an error, then we can be distracted. We can be tired. We can be busy. Um, I think a lot of times people feel guilty for managing the dog, Um, Because they think that somehow it's like the dog needs to be up in the middle of everything. Um, And I don't I don't find that to to be the case. That is not how I raise mine. Um, And I I, my dogs would argue they've got a pretty good quality of life here. So the um, what I often am saying to people is it's not practice makes perfect. Like if you draw three backwards a whole bunch of times, you just learn to draw three backwards. It's perfect. Practice makes perfect. So sometimes that's just waiting for a dog to grow through a developmental stage. Or sometimes Mm -hmm. it's waiting for a dog 
to, I don't know, become a different dog. Like I have really (laughs) fearful dogs. They're never going to be good at strangers bursting through the door. Like that's not a comfortable thing for them. So it's not a situation we put them in because, because practicing being freaked out at the front door because we're terrified is not, that's not helpful to them. It doesn't suddenly make them more resilient about strangers coming in. The other thing is, it's, it's also not kind. No. It is, it's just, it's like, why would you do that? If, if you are terrified of clowns, I'm going to like show up at your front door in a clown face every day. It's like, that's not kind and it's not helpful. Exactly. So, right. And, but I do think, and I will say this, like lots of families that I work with, with fearful dogs, they really do believe that practicing it will somehow make it better. When sometimes what we're actually building is we're ingraining that fear and that response. And so it's completely unintentional. I, I totally recognize that there, no one I know wakes up in the morning and goes, I'm going to screw up my dog today, right? Like that's not, nobody does that. Right. I mean, if you do, if you're that person, we call me, we need more help. So there's just, I think the reminder that we are training with every interaction, even the ones where maybe we weren't ideal and that that's where management is a big help. And having a whole bunch of options for what your dog can do that they know already makes living with them a lot easier. So having the crate, the gate, an indoor tether, a settle mat cue, a, a bedroom or a bathroom they're comfortable in, right? Having going, being able to go outside in a fenced yard and, and play and be comfortable with that, having more and more choices on our flow chart of what the dog knows how to do, is comfortable doing, and it's a nice, strong behavior, really is, for me, the goal. They don't have Mm -hmm. to be perfectly trained. They don't have to have a world-class stay. They just need to know that the Kong gets dropped off on the dog bed. That's right. Well, the other thing is that, sort of in in addition to this, is if you're going to, to use a crate as a management tool, which I think is a great idea. And the reason I don't have a crate in my office is my office is very small and I have a gate over it. And in theory, I can watch both dogs very easily inside my office when mm-hmm. I'm not podcasting. But anyway. Um, when you're not distracted. Right. And, and right now everybody's happy. We're not chewing anything we're not supposed to. But the thing about a crate or a tether or a settle mat, it's not. This is not solitary confinement where you're supposed to sit there and, and think about, you know, the evilness of my crimes. This is supposed to be a safe haven, a place where your dog goes, where it's comfortable and happy. So one of the things like I had, a, I was working with a client last night where I was talking about, we need to create a safe haven for your dog who has a really, really hard time with people coming to your house so that this dog can have a place to go where, where, it, it's happy. There's like through a dog's ear music and there's a comfy bed inside my crate and there's some lavender and maybe some DAP diffusing into the bedroom. And there's a nice tasty Kong for me. So that this is a place where the dog may actively choose to go to when I need a timeout. And I talk about when um, my grandkids were living here and Zuzu, who came from a house with nine dogs and no kids to a house with no other dogs and four kids all under the age of eight, um, found it a bit challenging. And so I set up my office as what we call Zuzu's Alone Zone. 
So there was a, a, a little sign on the gate that said Zuzu's Alone Zone where she could go. And there was her bed and toys and a DAP diffuser. And they knew that if Zuzu was in my office on her bed, you get to leave her alone because she's choosing to take a break. And if you think about it, you know, there are times when we need a break too. I mean, I really enjoy it when Clemmy goes down, Clementine goes down for her afternoon nap so that I know she's confined and happy and sleeping. And when she wakes up, there will be something waiting for her. And I can get something done. I don't feel like I have to be on call at all minute, at all time. And maybe your dog doesn't always want to be on call either. I think this is really true when we add kids. Mm -hmm. Like I a lot of times say to, to parents, like if you're in that moment where you wish you could be sent to your room for some thinking time and some quiet time, probably your dog wants that too. Right. And, and it's interesting. I've actually had kids learn to settle by like moms or dads picking a specific set of behaviors that means like, and now it's the witching hour and our house has turned into mayhem, right? Like whatever that predictor is. And in that moment, going to the freezer and getting a Kong and putting the dog away and the kids start to regulate better. Because Mm -hmm. they start to go, oh, like that, that's the sign that like the cascade of brush your teeth, take your bath, put your pajamas on and go to bed is happening, (laughs) right? (laughs) Because we've like, it's, it's evening and it's time. So specifically, I am, and I know we talk about this all the time. I am a big fan of what are some things we can do when we need to get the dog out of the situation, right? Like if we know that the little kid still isn't quite managing to pick up all their dirty socks and underwear and pajamas and all that stuff and get it into the hamper. And we have an adolescent puppy who thinks stealing things, running around the house, swallowing them and giving themselves a bowel obstruction is super fun. That's management. We manage our way around that because while we're still teaching the child, we don't want life threatening lack of management or expensive lack of management. Like Mm -hmm. replacing all of your child's clothing or toys is not like, we're just mad at the dog. Right. So lots of times this divide and conquer, a lot of my work is sitting with a family and going, let's look at your daily routine and see what we can do differently. That makes us not so cross with each other and not so cross with the dog. Right. And And knowing knowing that it'll get better over time because now the dog's not practicing the inappropriate stuff. And by the way, neither is the kid, neither are the kids. So if the child says, I want to go get Rummy out of his crate, you go, great. Have you picked up all of your toys? Right. Excellent. That's awesome. Let's go make sure. Great. Now, have you picked up all of your dirty clothes and put them away? Are your school, like we can start teaching children those executive skills of kind of stowing the stuff And then maybe pulling their bedroom door closed because that's one more layer of safety for, you know, your GI Joes. And then and what are we going to do with Remy when we have Remy out and we're playing with him? Should we should we work on sits and downs? Should we practice hide and go seek? What are we going to what are we doing with the dog? Right. Are we taking him for a walk? So um, I find for most families, they're just trying to survive their day. And me Mm -hmm. being old and having been through it a little bit. 
backing up and saying, okay, well, this is how we can make it easier, right? We can give the teenager, if the teenager is enjoying the dog, time while we're taking care of the little kids to do something really cool with the dog that the littles don't get to do, Mm -hmm. right? Um, You know, Mm -hmm. teaching the dog who cocks their head beautifully cheese for the child who likes to take a ton of Snapchat pictures, right? Right. Maybe taking the time to teach that dog to like weird stuff on his head, right? It makes a lot of chicken happen so that it makes the child's heart sing and the dog and the child have something special together. So there is a little bit of, you know, all that kind of stuff. And what I see is that management actually puts us in a position we can do that elegant, awesome, cool stuff. Right. And the other thing I find, too, is that management, when you're doing something like, um, you know, okay, this is the time when Remy gets his Kong in his crate, um, dogs begin to anticipate. I mean, they've got circadian rhythms. They can figure this stuff out. So come 7 o'clock, maybe Remy's standing by the freezer as a reminder. It's Kong time. It's Kong time. So I find that sometimes putting these routines in place or these these management things like this is how we go up the steps or this is the time we spend in our crate teaches the dog how to settle himself, teaches the dog that this is my time to have some downtime. And that can be really effective because when the dog is sort of buys into the routine and says, yes, this is pretty cool, then you have, it's so much easier to, to one, to continue that routine. And two, then you can begin to incorporate kids in part of the routine. So when the dog is sitting in front of the refrigerator and you're looking at seven o'clock, you know, one of the kids is saying, hey, it's time for Remy's Kong. Can I give it to her? So these things can all build on one another to create, right. you know, special right. times I mean, if- and special places. When we, so what I find is that when we're able to put a little bit of routine into it all, we suddenly find we have time we didn't have before. Because before we were cleaning up the torn up paper towel, or we were stitching up the socks that were chewed up by the dog, or, you know, whatever. We were dealing with a crying child for 40 minutes because their, you know, favorite blankie got gnawed on by the puppy. So, my experience is the more that we can get these routines in place, one, it makes the, it, it, we tend to find time that we didn't have before. Cause we have a little bit kind of like meal planning, right? Like if at five right. o'clock you go, Oh no, it's dinner time. What are we going to do? That's a really different experience in life and a lot more stressful than knowing like, Hey, all of the ingredients for the Southwestern chicken, soup are ready to go. And and that's what we're going to do for dinner tonight. We already have a plan. It's already in the, it's already in the pot warming up. So, um, I think families are really pinched a lot of the time. And one of the things that I try to be really cognizant of is I never, ever want a family to feel like I'm telling them they're not doing enough. Most of the time I'm telling them they're doing too much and that I want them to actually like Make the time with their dog quality, not so much quantity. The the dog will be happier for it, and so will the whole family. And what I find is the more that quality time happens, the less we're having a fuss, and the more the dog gets integrated into things because we've built on success instead of building on negative attention-seeking. 
Right. And so management becomes really effective during those times when you can't have that quality time that the dog is right. is is ha- is being happily managed. That's the key. It's like I said, right. this is and not that, solitary confinement. Is- this is happily managing the dog so that you feel okay about giving the dog this time. And to be fair, yes. sometimes it is a punishment, right? Sometimes it is you have been a jerk face and have been getting into mischief all day long and you just need to go to your crate. And that is okay too. You just don't want that to be all of the time. Right. The same way that you send your child to their room sometimes because you kind of just don't want to deal with them right now. You need a cooling. Everybody needs to cool off. Well, that like that's okay too. Honestly, if a child barfs in the middle of the room, you are not going to be going to the kitchen freezer and, and grabbing a Kong to put your dog away. You're going to be stuffing a dog in a crate unceremoniously, right? Because you got, it's a 911. We have an emergency. So you just, you know, like it, I think, I think sometimes dog trainers accidentally with the best of intentions set kind of impossible goals for families. And I'm much more about realistic goals. Right. But what I would say is that the more the dog has happy time in his crate, then those times when it's a 911 just are not going to matter so much. Right. I mean, today I needed, I had a little bit of a 911 moment. I had a new client contact me and they needed to borrow a crate and I needed to be on a podcast. And so it was like, I had to be quick. I went to the fridge the normal dog treats that are normally there aren't there because I'm perimenopausal and I've probably put them in the dishwasher. And so I grabbed carrots. My dogs have never had carrots, but I grabbed baby carrots. I was like, you know what? Baby carrots are sweet. We're going to have baby. And so my dogs joyfully went into the crate and went, okay, she gave us a vegetable. But because (laughs) they have a long history of steak happening in the crate, Except for one dog, the orange vegetable was just fine. I don't know if the little dog is hoarding the carrot or if he just thinks (laughs) carrots are dumb. I'll have to navigate that with him later. So um, it it can be ugly but effective. It's still okay. But you're right. If, If the only time the dog has ever been put in the crate is when they're in solitary, well, yeah, big surprise they're not going to like that. Right. It's kind of like when I'm teaching find it where we, you toss a handful of treats and you tell the dog to find it and you're throwing it opposite to whatever the distraction is. I always tell my clients, I train with eight to 12 treats in my hand so that when the dog is learning it, they learn, oh, Julie always throws eight to 12 treats. So when the time comes, I reach into my bait bag and I only have three. We're still, they have to be here somewhere because Julie always throws eight to 12 treats. I'm sure they're here somewhere. So it's the same kind of thing with the crate. If you train that the crate's a great place to be, that the times when it's not going to be so great because we have to shove you in there are going to be okay. They're not going to have these long-term consequences because the vast, it's going to be like, okay, my owner is like malfunctioning somehow today. I bet next time it'll be okay. Yeah. Right. And, and I, I will say, so Jack is just getting ready to turn five. Marco just turned six. Pug is six. Each of them have places that on their own, they have turned into their little, when I need to get away, but I don't want to be outside or in my crate, where do I go lay down? I sometimes, like Jack goes, for example, Jack goes and lays on the guest room bed. That is his favorite spot. 
So sometimes when he goes in there, if there's going to be shenanigans going on with everyone else in the household, I might just close the bedroom door. And he actually, it's really funny. He just wags his tail. Like when I go to close the door, he's not like, oh no, you're locking me in the bedroom. He's like, awesome. I get to hang out on the bed by myself without the cat or the pug. Right. So, um, I do think there's a little bit of where does your dog gravitate to, right? If I'm seeing that my dog sneaks off to the guest room bedroom, every time I'm running the sewing machine, maybe the sewing machine is a little bit stressful and maybe it makes a weird sound that I can't hear that he can, but it doesn't bother him in the guest room bed. So I might say, Hey, why don't you go to the guest room instead of hanging out right here where I'm running the sewing machine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So no, management I isn't always the crate. It can be a gate. It can be a door. It can be all sorts of things, but it is about the dog being relaxed and comfortable there. Right. And just because when you introduced it, when they were an eight week old puppy and they hated it does not mean that they're always going to hate it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I did not like cauliflower until I was over 40. Yeah. You and me both. Like, like we can, dogs are incredibly flexible and when we meet them where we are, they are, and we teach them. I have crate trained so many dogs that people told me could never, ever be crate trained. It's, it's silly. And it's not that I'm magic or some amazing dog trainer, even though Julie says I am. It's just, I know a bunch of the tricks and I don't let the dog get super stressed. That's right. it. So that's the the beauty of what a dog trainer can ha- a good dog trainer can give you is helping you navigate the things that are uncomfortable in a way to to grease the skids and make it easier for everybody. Right. And if you need a dog trainer, one of the things that we recommend is the Association of Professional Dog Trainers has a trainer search. You can put your zip code in. I think the um was it there's another group. I'm a member of it. You think I'd remember the name of it. Um, but uh, you can always call me or email us and we can help you find a trainer in your area. Just let us know where you are and what your zip code is and we can help you. One of the things that I have done in the past is people have said, I don't know who to choose in my area. And I'd like, well, let me know where you are. And I take a look and um, Tina and I can perhaps read the website a little bit more carefully and say, yeah, this one I think I like a little bit better than that one because of the way in which they have phrased things. So if you need help finding a trainer, we can help you do that for one in your area. Just let us know. And you can contact us through feedback at yourfamilydogpodcast.com. So make sure that uh, if you need help, don't hesitate to reach out. So thanks, Tina. I think that it was nice to spend some time talking about management in a little bit more detail. We mentioned it a lot, but it's usually in passing. Oh, I think this is a management thing rather than a training thing. And I think to spend some time talking about the advantages of management as a training tool and as a, and as effective way to help not just your dog, but your whole family is uh, time to well spent. So we will see you all next time on your family dog. Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. 